Gold prices come up to the water's edge of 1900 an ounce, and the world's number two miner makes a surprising CEO pick. Welcome to Kick a Roundtable. I'm your host, Michael McRae. With me, editor Niels Christensen. Hi, Niels. Happy Friday. Hello. Kick a correspondent, Paul Harris. Welcome, Paul. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. And the guest that is going to close the year with us is Andrew Cheadle. Andrew is former executive director of PDAC and was recently appointed director of Tanzania Gold. I've worked with Andrew through the years. I've always loved his enthusiasm and expansive industry views. Andrew, welcome to Kickle Roundtable. Yeah, Michael, thank you very much and good evening. I'm in London, UK tonight. I know you've got a couple hats, but uh, maybe you could uh, just take us through Tanzania Gold first. Yeah, no, of course. But uh, so... Tanzanian Gold, obviously, uh, uh, developing a project in Tanzania called the Buck Reef uh, Project, listed in uh, Toronto, TNX, and uh, on the New York Stock Exchange, America's Exchange. So at the moment, we are uh, sitting on about uh, 2.6 million ounces of gold, 2 million in the MI category. Just kicked off mid-year with a pilot plant, uh, a modest five uh, tons an hour, uh, just to prove concept in the oxides where and of course, we have plans to expand that to 40 tons an hour. But the big thing, of course, is the sulfide project where we're targeting around about 175,000 uh, ounces a year. What is unique about this uh, setup is that we are 45 percent, 55 joint venture with the state uh, mining company. So it's the whole company is founded on uh, ESG principles, partnerships. And I think we can get into that a little bit later. First, we start with precious metals. Niels, I thought the gold was yesterday's news and investors were all moving into Bitcoin. When you think gold is down, that's just when it pops up. Um, you know, we're now, like you said, we're testing the water's edge, uh, testing resistance at 1900. Um, a lot of uh, expectations that actually we get above there um, by the end of the year. I mean, this is the last full week of trading for financial markets. So uh, next week and the week after that, you know, we're getting into holiday season, holiday trading, really thin uh, volumes. So pretty much anything happened, but um, the trend is, is definitely up. And I think that's thanks to uh, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome, uh, Jerome Powell, who basically reiterated that, you know, he'll be doing whatever he can to keep interest rates low and keep the money flowing into financial markets. Maybe if you could take us through us a bit more and then what are the positive storylines for gold and then maybe what are going to be the negative storylines for gold? Positive storylines for gold. I mean, it's it's pretty much everybody's saying the same thing, which is unprecedented central bank and government stimulus policies across the grow, globe. They're just central banks and governments are pumping trillions and trillions of dollars into financial markets and uh, this is going to create inflation. This is going to debase every single fiat currency around the world. And pretty much the only place you have to store your wealth is in gold or precious metals or commodities too. I mean, you know, maybe if you want to buy grains and stuff like that, but um, a lot of people see uh, gold as that, you know, ultimate store of wealth in, in 2021. On the downside is obviously equity markets, and, you know, we're hitting record valuations and it's just, this is the bubble that can, that just feels like it can go on forever, especially as we get um, vaccines, you know, vaccines start to roll out, you know, hopefully we hit herd immunity by, you know, mid 2021, and then the economy can really take off. Um, 
I do have, I do question that in that, you know, like even if, even if the world does pick up and growth, you know, does go higher, there's no way we grow ourselves out of the, the hole that we've dug ourselves with, with all of this money printing. I mean, Niels, is it possible for investors to have their cake and eat it? And by that, I mean, you know, coming out of COVID with the vaccine, you know, the economic boost from that, things getting going again, obviously good for the stock market. And yet at the same time, you've got these fundamentals for gold, which are good for the gold price. Is it possible for gold to go up and the stock market to keep at record highs and keep going up at the same time? Well, yeah. And and they're both going by the same thing, which is, you know, they're they're both being being pushed higher by the same thing, which is uh, unprecedented stimulus. We saw that back in we saw that back earlier in the in the year when equities were were uh, up and gold was hitting uh, all time highs above $2,000 an ounce. And it's just, you know, it's all of this, everything's sort of tied to, to stimulus, you know, this money has to go somewhere. So it goes into equities and then people use, use gold now to hedge that equity risk because, you know, bonds at less than, you know, 1% gives you absolutely no insurance in the marketplace anymore. Well, it's negative, isn't it? Once you take into account inflation, you got negative rate. Yeah, well, I didn't want to. I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to give away my my number of the week. And, and uh, some countries are. I was reading that are now looking at charging you for holding cash, aren't they? Yeah. To be fair, I mean, what's the the lesser of two evils? Losing money in a bank account, or you know, like just having it evaporate because of, of risk. I just, I don't know, you know, like, I just, I, I don't know what the answer is. I, I hold gold, I guess, is, is probably the answer. <laughs> silver, gold and silver. There we go. Just <laughs> uh, I, 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 we're, we're going to have to uh, push on past uh, gold nails because we really had a jam packed uh, week uh, with both on junior news as well as mining news. Surprising considering this is deep into the holiday season, but we should uh, really note first uh, the passing of George Giro. Who was he? So George Jura was a managing director at RBC Wealth Management. Just an incredible guy. I got the I had the privilege at Kitco to write a feature on him, and we reached out to just tons of people. Reached uh, you know got back to us about just what kind of man he was. I mean, he was he passed away last week at the age of eighty four. I was calling him up talking about markets as early at, you know as as late as like early December. You know, so he, he just, he really had this passion for markets that he, he lived through his entire life. And I just, and he was just such a nice, nice person. Like he's just, you know, I'm, I'm really sad that um, I've lost a really nice friend. Our condolences uh, to George uh, Giro's family, and it was noticeable within, um, you know, the social feeds that I uh, follow uh, the number of, you know, the number of people that were commenting on uh, how kind of person he was. Paul, on to junior news. What's a super pod and what does it have to do with Aero Copper? Well, um, let's just frame the, the, the conversation. Copper's at $3.60 a pound, its highest level since 2003. Um, so, it's all systems go for copper and Aero Copper is a, a copper producer in Brazil, um, a sort of junior producer there, a junior mid-tier producer. And it announced uh, an intercept of uh, 46.5 meters grading nine, sorry, 4.96% copper. Um, that's a, a really big intercept at uh, its uh, the Pilar mine 
within the, the Vermelos district in Bahia, Brazil. This is a, a company that's uh, got a, it's a junior company, but it's got a $1.7 billion market cap and it, uh, it just keeps finding more and more copper. Solaris had a big raise. Yes, uh, another company heading in that direction is Solaris Resources, which is exploring for copper in Ecuador. The company IPO'd in the summer and now has a market cap of more than half a billion dollars on the back primarily of uh, two big drill intercepts at its Warinsa project of over a thousand meters grading almost 1% copper. They're now looking to raise another 52 million Canadian uh, to accelerate their drill program. And uh, that's basically all going to be gobbled up by company insiders and strategic partners. There was a preliminary economic assessment from O3 Mining. Yes, uh, switching into Canada, into Ontario, O3 um, put out a PEA on its Garrison Gold project in the Kirkland Lake region, um, looking at an 11,000 ton a day operation, which will produce an average of uh, 94,000 ounce a year for 12 years. And this follows on the back of their recent uh, Marbon PEA in Quebec, which uh, outlined 115,000 ounce a year production for 15 years. O3 is part of the Cisco group of companies, uh, which has uh, got a long history and track record of building mines, most notably perhaps the Canadian Malartic mine. So it seems that O3 is taking big steps in that direction of transitioning towards becoming a producer. Uh, staying with the production, um, uh, staying with the production theme and also with the Canada theme, uh, Marco Day's uh, Pure Gold hit a milestone this week, Paul. Yes, Pure Gold. Um, They've got the, it's formerly called the Madsen Mine in Red Lake, Ontario. They've renamed it the Pure Gold Mine to make it very confusing. Um, but they've added the first, introduced the first ore into the mill. Um, so they expect to have a gold pour, their first gold pour before Christmas. Um, Pure Gold Mine is a, is a high grade mine uh, that's going to be producing uh, 80,000 ounces a year for an initial 11 years. And they've got a long, la large land package there, seven kilometers of strike. So that looks like it's going to grow and grow and grow. Uh, going back uh, to Latin America, Solgold CEO Nick Mather was rebooked uh, during yesterday's shareholder meeting with 44.7% voting against his reinstatement on the board. Uh, of course, Solgold's uh, Cascabel in Ecuador is identified as a tier one asset, one of the largest undeveloped mines in the world. Interest in the mine led to investments by BHP and Newgrest in Solgold. Investors have been critical of Solgold's decision, namely selling a $150 million royalty on the property. The company has also been delaying feasibility studies. Ivory Coast uh, focused uh, Rocks Gold received its mining permits for its Seguela Gold project. A production is planned for 2022. Annual production is expected to be about 100,000 ounces at a nice all-in sustaining cost of $750 an ounce. Uh, on to mining. What was the big M&A news this week, Paul? Well, the big M&A news this week was Equinox Gold uh, acquiring Premier Gold Mines in a $612 million Canadian uh, deal principally to obtain the Hard Rock Gold Development Project in Ontario. Now, this uh, transaction comes uh, almost a year to the day after Equinox Gold announced um, the acquisition or the merger with Lee Gold Mining. And so it seems to be becoming a, a regular habit. Um, and this transaction will increase the company's portfolio to eight producing mine, mines with production guidance of about 750,000 ounces for next year at an all-in sustaining cost of $1,000. Um, now has a portfolio spread over four countries, Canada, the USA, Mexico, and Brazil. And, and for me, a key aspect of this 
is how Equinox is repeatedly seeking to create value out of complex situations, whether that is taking on challenge products, uh, projects like Arizona or Castle Mountain, or bringing multiple parties together to the table for the mutual benefit of all. So for example, this deal with Premier involved bringing four parties to the table, including Centera Gold, its joint venture partner in Hard Rock, with whom it was uh, ended up in, a, in, a, in court earlier this year over disagreement about how to take the, the project forward. And of course, this follows on from the company's foundation in 2017, which was a, a three-way merger, bringing together three juniors to launch Equinox Gold. Uh, you know, we seem to be in a nice trend right now because we did had uh, a major merger and acquisition announcement during uh, last week's podcast. So we seem to be in a bit of a role here right now. Yes. And, and this deal also creates a new company. Um, the, the transaction doesn't include all of the assets in Premier Gold Mines. The Nevada assets are going to be spun out into a new company called IAT Gold, which upon closing, um, that will is due to IPO or list uh, in the first quarter of next year. Um, so that has two sort of development stage projects and uh, part of a, a joint venture with Nevada gold mines, a producing mine with Nevada gold mines. Equinox Gold is going to become a, a, a principal shareholder of that, around 30%. Um, and also in Nevada this week, a busy week there, Core Mining has announced an expansion to its, its Rochester mine. Um, they're going to double the, the plant capacity, which will double the production to over 8 million ounces of silver and 80,000 ounces of gold a year. So uh, all going strongly in Nevada. Surprise move at Rio Tinto. Uh, the world's number two miner has been looking for a CEO since Jean-Sebastien Dominique Francois Jacques was forced to fall on a sword due to the destruction of ancient archaeological significant caves this past spring in Australia. Thoughts where the CEO appointment would go to an outsider, someone who could take a fresh look at Rio Tinto's culture and perhaps come up with enhanced social license credentials, which could provide more comfort to investors. Instead, the company settled on one of its execs. That's a chief financial officer, Jacob Stossholm. The Danish-born Stossholm has experience in both Royal Dutch Shell and Maersk. He has been with Rio Tinto since 2018. Aside from ensuring investors on the social license front, Stossholm will also have to deal with Australia's deteriorating trade status with China and cost overruns at the Mongolia project. Other social license news that hit this week was headlines at Valley's sale of New Caledonia Nickel Complex. The New Caledonia is home to around a quarter of the world's known reserves of nickel, that according to Nikkei Asia, but Valley could never make this project work. Since acquiring the site for $19 billion in 2007, uh, Valet has never been able to reach its annual production targets. Uh, it has, due to complications with the processing of ore and other difficulties, Valet has been taking write-downs on this property in the billions. Uh, it's a complicated story, but New Caledonia is in Southeast Asia, but also part of France. In October, the territory nearly seceded in a referendum. The sale of a nickel plant has become a proxy for independence drive. Remainers are preferring one buyer by those who are seeking independence are preferring another. The issue is fraught with widespread protests. The Guardian reports that cars have been torched, shops vandalized, and police and protesters injured in clashes. In a repeat of the same issue in uh, Caledonia, the South China Morning Post reported that demonstrations involving 800 workers are taking issue with China-backed PT Virtue Dragon Nickel Industry, that's in Indonesia. 
On Monday, the demonstration descended into an anarchy when management at the company wouldn't meet the workers' union to discuss pay raises and a change in employment status. Uh, security forces were sent to the area to secure order. Andrew, it seems to be that the miners are definitely treating this as a concern. You saw what is happening in Rio Tinto, but given the headlines, I'm just also wondering if the public is perhaps moving faster on this issue. I think you're absolutely right. Um, it's, it's a very fast-moving scene, Michael. You, you can't go to an investment conference now or, or sit in an investment meeting without discussing ESG. It, it's at times almost the only discussion on the table. So I, I think that uh, as a mining uh, fraternity, we understand it, we get it. I, I think uh, we've got a lot of work to do in, in terms of overturning public perceptions, which often to me seem to be stuck in the 1970s. Uh, it's our job to, to build the trust uh, with society at large and with the governments that we work with. When you come to a particular company, do you point to somebody that is doing it particularly well? Yeah, I, I do, particularly through the IFC with a number of companies. To me, Anglo-American uh, Corporation stands out. Um, the, the work that Mark Kutafani and his team do, uh, if you just look at the company purpose, for example, uh, reimagining mining for the benefit of society. It's, it's what drives them. I, I just wanted to ask, I mean, I, I, I completely agree with you, Andrew, that, that ESG is, is very much a communication first um, issue. And I'm sort of wondering, you know, like when, when you hear something like, what happened with Rio Tinto, you know, blowing up these, these caves that, you know, were a symbol of first civilization on earth. Um, it feels like me, like they need to do better with communication. No, it's, it's, it's obviously staggering. And I think everybody has, has been deeply shocked by what happened. I mean, these, these are artifacts of humanity and, you know, to put that in perspective, you know, 46,000 year old hieroglyphics. Let's put that in context, tens of thousands of years older than the pyramids and tens of thousands of years older than Stonehenge where I'm near, nearby. It's very, very significant. And, and obviously it beggars belief that the whole thing could have actually happened in a company like Rio Tinto, well known for having an intense and, uh, procedures and policies in place. You know, but we do have to do better. No, no doubt. And I think how we respond to those sort of crises is also equally important. Bad enough that it, ha that it happened, uh, but also it, it, it was shocking to a lot of people, uh, the response of the company. But, you know, they've ultimately responded. And uh, as you mentioned earlier, um, you know, the, the few people had to fall on the knife. I think with, with ESG, a lot of people, we, we talk about as, as a, you know, the, the communicational aspects of it. And most people in that context, think of the external communication, you know, miners talking with governments, talking with communities, talking with local stakeholders. But in this particular instance, it seems perhaps to be more of a, an internal communication failure. You know, the, the company mm. at its board level and its senior executive level got its CSG policies and aims and um, talked the good talk. And somehow that hasn't percolated down to the far corners of the company and everybody wearing uh, the Rio Tinto, in this instance, company overalls. Mm -hmm. uh, is that something you you see communication gaps a lot you know internally within within organizations yeah it, it, it all comes down to culture and you know those are a little bit older no will remember of course that in the 1980s uh, early 1990s industry had a terrible uh, number of fatalities that uh, obviously impacted deeply families and individuals but 
collectively we address that. I mean, initially, you know, I was working with a large corporation at the time, uh, again, Anglo-American, where we brought in concepts of safe production, large departments and programs that ultimately changed the culture um, of safety away from the macho, take the risk kind of culture to one where there's an intense duty of care that permeates all the way down to the uh, to the pit floor or, or the rock face. I would like to suggest that as we continue to work with uh, methods around uh, ESG, we'll go through a similar journey where that culture of doing the right thing in terms of environmental, social and governance uh, permeates, again, all the way through to, to the pit floor, uh, through the administration offices and the rock face. Thank you. Andrew, what is the uh, circular economy? Well, that's a, 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 a great question, uh, Michael. So the, the circular economy is an, an, economic, an economic theory that um, we will reuse, recycle and repurpose a lot more than we are doing now. That doesn't mean that mining will go away, but it means that we will be doing a lot more of, uh, of the recycling, repurposing and reusing. So it, it's all about recognizing that the, there is a finite limit on the planet um, and that we should uh, work with our resources in a very responsible way. And, and just to comment a bit more, more on that, a, a lot of us are very, very used to recycling and reusing. Um, you know, if we just think about uh, recycling our glass bottles, for example, or um, uh, aluminum or aluminum uh, cans, we already have structures in place to do a lot of those things. Um, so just trying to imagine that whole concept applied to everything. And this isn't just an economic theory, it's uh, in application, uh, particularly in Europe. The government of Canada is already uh, talking about it. It's already in, in integrated into the new Canadian mining plan, for example. Of course, uh, auto regulations that are coming down uh, for uh, the EVs, uh, you know, auto manufacturers are uh, responsible uh, for uh, the recycling and the recovery of uh, the batteries. And uh, again, kind of creating that uh, circular economy. Uh, there is uh, challenges with uh, the uh, uh, materials uh, that uh, the batteries are composed of, and then mm -hmm. actually being able to pull them out and uh, making sure they're of a particular grade uh, that would allow them to be uh, reused. Uh, you see a lot of companies in the space right now that uh, are uh, floating their own technologies and then just making themselves aware. Uh, also, it's interesting within the space too, because you have the, the PGM recyclers, uh, the people that uh, recycle your palladium, your rhodium, your platinum from the catalytic converters kind of an easy process. It's just kind of a meltdown, but uh, now they're looking at uh, the battery space, which is really kind of a quite different beast in terms of actually being able to recover valuable materials uh, from those batteries when uh, there's something that, um, how would you say it's not a straight piece of metal, but it is something that is kind of finely put together. Uh, and so that does look in a way that uh, audio manufacturers probably make more have the capacity for actually doing that type of recycling. Yeah, and in fact, we've also just recently seen a, a company called Lifecycle, uh, based in Ontario, with a, a plant in Ontario, another one in Rochester in upstate New York, um, starting to move into the uh, battery recycle. Um, they've increased capacity recently to about 10,000 tons a year. Um, so now they've become North America's largest spent lithium-ion batteries recycler. What is particularly intriguing and interesting to me about that uh, particular project um, is that the founders and the backers of this are by and large mining people. Now, the Menon family, 
um, the Perulises are involved. You know, th these are serious mining families that are now backing and getting into, into the recycling. Let's uh, get to our number of the week. We always start with a guest. Andrew, what's your number of the week? I'm going for a, an interesting number, 44. I don't know what that is. I got nothing. <laughs> Anything there? No? Problem. No. Okay, so, so 44 is the uh, number that uh, Lewis Hamilton wears on his car and his coveralls. And uh, many of us will know that Lewis Hamilton uh, is, of course, a Formula One racer. He has equaled Michael Schumacher's seven world championships. Uh, he's also broken the record for the uh, most races won in, in the Grand Prix uh, circuit. So he's often considered the greatest uh, of all time. But uh, what's particularly interesting about uh, what uh, Lewis Hamilton has done is that he's been very outspoken about the need for diversity, about the ending of uh, racism in the sports, and he's using his uh, platform to really further those needs of diversity. And that sort of links back into, uh, for me, a little more of a personal space. Uh, I keep my links to my old university, Imperial College, and the Hamilton Commission has been formed in which the president, uh, Professor Alice Gast, is a member. So, and they're looking at um, STEM education in the diversity of the population, because still to this day, there's very, very few people of uh, um, visible minorities in, in motor racing. Uh, so it's, it's a great example of somebody using their, their position of influence to, to do good. Wonderful number, Andrew. Uh, I, I'm just going to segue. Uh, you know, we usually uh, go through our numbers quick, but I just want to ask, how come we haven't uh, seen races or at least popularized races uh, using um, uh, using EV uh, drivetrains? Uh, there's a whole new genre, yeah. uh, Formula E, that's uh, out there that, uh, that takes place. And uh, there's already some crossover uh, between uh, Formula One drivers and uh, going into Formula E. Well, Lewis Hamilton's got a, a, a Formula E team, hasn't he? he he's got a, a more of a sort of a, uh, it's not Formula E, but it is tied into more uh, rally style driving, uh, electrical EVs. I thought he actually had a, a team or he was sponsoring a, a team or something like that. Well, anyway. well I have to, to, to go with you on that one. I didn't catch that particular news, but he's certainly involved in the EV space uh, in all the sort of cross country side of things. I'm not a follower, but uh, what's the aesthetic difference between uh, looking at an ICE race and an EV race? Well, it's a lot quieter. I like watching mot um, motorcycle racing, and there's a Formula E equivalent for motorcycles. And the, the, the torque, the acceleration of those guys is just unreal. It's, it's a completely different beast to control. They, they drive very differently to ICE uh, engines. Um, and sooner or later, you can see that... Um, the two sports or, or, or the, the two methods that can converge onto just the battery powered engines and uh, very exciting. Yeah, I it, love it's very exciting. exactly the same comment. And so just like to say the same thing in the um, Formula E, if, if you can imagine as, as uh, children or perhaps even as adults, um, we've all enjoyed Skeletrics, you know, the, the fun and games of uh, electrical car races uh, at home. And it's almost like that on, on the real track. Um, astonishing acceleration. Uh, I was going to say Montreal hosted uh, uh, Formula One um, e-race last year. Um, unfortunately, the city of Montreal didn't plan very well. And uh, a lot of people are, it, it left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. Because um, they, they set the track up in the downtown. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, it was just, it was, it was, the planning was kind of a mess. 
Um, so, but I thought, I thought the, the race went really, really well, but just the whole, then politics got involved, which is unfortunate because I think, yeah, you know, I I think EVs, I I don't know, I don't know how long it's going to take, but I think that's the future, you know, like this whole decarbonization is very much real. Yeah, and of course, you know, we just just quickly link that back to ESGs. We're already seeing uh, mining companies, uh, uh, Newmont, for example, with the Borden project, making an announcement today that they're planning spending over, I think, five hundred million dollars uh, over the next few years to decarbonize their their workflow. Um, but on a personal level, you know, I, I question: Is a car I'm driving at the moment, which uh, is it going to be the last combustion engine car that I ever drive? It probably is. Um, you know, my next vehicle will probably be an EV. Niels, what's your number of the week? Um, my, I have two actually. So I have uh, 18, um, 18 trillion to be, well, over 18 trillion to be exact, um, and uh, uh, 7.4 trillion. US debt. <laughs> sort of, sort of. So 18 trillion. So last week, uh, negative yielding debt went over $18 trillion for a new record. Um, so like the sovereign debt is now $18 trillion of value is in negative. You're paying governments to hold your money. Um, and then 7.4, um, that's where they think uh, the uh, Federal Reserve balance sheet is going to get to before the end of the year. It's already, it's already, it's already hitting new records, you know, every month, every week kind of thing um, over $7 trillion. So um, there's a lot of liquidity in the system. Paul, what's your number of the week? Well, I've got two as well. Um, one of the main news stories at the moment is the coronavirus um, vaccines. And so my number is 50 to 70% related to that. And that's the amount of people that need to be vaccinated for it to be effective in stopping uh, sort of COVID-19. Um, and my other number is 11.9, and more specifically, $11.9 million. Um, that's the amount of money raised in Colombia via an auction of gold um, handed over by the FARC guerrilla, which is going to be used for reparations to victims uh, of the armed conflict. So positive oh. um, use of gold there. And of course, uh, Paul, you're based in Colombia. Yes. So yeah, it's been in the news quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, my number is sevenfold and uh, that's uh, keeping with uh, the circular economy and um, uh, decarbonization theme. The mining sector will have installed just over 2.4 gigawatts of renewable capacity by the year end of 2020. And by the year end of 2025, this figure is expected to rise to 18.5 gigawatts as companies seek to reduce their carbon footprint of their operations. Uh, another uh, data point by 2025, 90% of large copper mine sites in Chile will have installed renewables or procured renewable energy. Uh, and I think we weren't uh, mentioning just a little while ago, Paul, that it doesn't seem like a week can pass without the mention of somebody that has actually done some procurement uh, around some type of renewable uh, power for uh, their facility. Absolutely. Yeah, this this is a current theme is a hot theme, and it's one that's going to continue to be so for, for the coming years. There's a fundamental shift away from carbon amongst the miners, both in terms of producing the stuff, digging it out the ground, and also using it as an energy source. Niels. 
just wanted to ask Andrew and, and actually the rest of the panel. I mean, do you guys think this is going to work? Like, is this going to, is ESG going to attract investors? Like, you know, do they care about the idea that mines are, are using renewable energy to mine their metals? Well, I think fundamentally, yes. Um, it's becoming a key, a key issue for them because they're getting that pressure from a lot of organizations above them to really take into account ESG. And so, for example, a, a story this morning I was reading in The Guardian, um, Sumitomo in Japan has basically written down its investment in a coal-fired power station in Australia because it can't refinance. Nobody will touch its efforts to refinance. So it's basically had to, you know, wash its hands of that investment and write it down. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I know, and this is something that we've talked about too, like there is this business case um, for renewables. Like it's actually like you can, you can make money, you know, getting out of coal fire plants and, and, and diesel engines to run your mind. So, I mean, I, I see that, but I'm just sort of wondering, you know, like do, does this something that excite, is this something that can excite investors back into the sector? I, I think, uh, Neil, just to, to comment on that, and I was also able to write a piece about impact investing recently. And I think as we get better at ESG, not just in terms of doing it, but also communicating it, so we will become more attractive to impact investors. And, and why is that relevant? You know, back in 2014, it was around about $40 billion of assets under management um, with direct impact investors. Today, we're standing just shy of a, of a trillion dollars under management. We're seeing large shifts of wealth from generation, an older generation now, the, the, the boomers to the younger generation, which cares a lot more about where their products sourced, what's, what's, in my, what's in my phone, what's in the paint on my car. So I think we will start attracting different investors. It's also projected by some that that sector, the impact investing sector, could continue to grow to about $26 trillion under management. We would be foolish not to be fit to be able to talk to the, the, these funds that are looking at uh, those type of investments. And, and we are uniquely placed as a mining industry. Um, there are a few industries like ours where we really can uh, when we get it so right to build local community, help develop nation, right? Um, so th- these are the very themes of impact investors. But where are we at the moment? The, the two sides are sort of kind of like, oh, that's what you do. And it's like, oh, that's what you do. And um, sort of just beginning, just beginning to talk with each other um, mm-hmm. around that. You know, at the same time, of course, you know, now, I've had the privilege of running companies. You don't want to run the company as if it's an NGO either, right? We're there to, we all want to make money, whether it's in an investment fund or through our shareholdings. But at the same time, as we go about that, we can attain, I think, also a higher purpose. And I think um, as we do that, so different investors will come to us. I think that's a terrific note uh, to uh, end uh, our regular uh, 2020 podcast on, Andrew. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, what's the news flow from Tanzania over the next 12 months? Oh, right. So it's going to be actually very exciting. You're probably aware that we just announced a couple of weeks ago, we have a new CEO, uh, Stephen Maloney, former partner at PwC in, in Toronto and uh, uh, head of their, their mining there. So... As we go forward, what we'll be looking at is uh, some metallurgical results coming out quite soon. Uh, 
uh, we will continue to be um, our operations and expanding those, as mentioned, up to 40 tons an hour. We're continuing with our exploration. Uh, Stephen and I will be over in Tanzania in January, so we can expect some news around that as we engage with our local stakeholders uh, and enhance local uh, relationships. And of course, we have to continue to raise um, uh, money. And those that are familiar with our shareholdings, um, it, it's been uh, largely retail and uh, family and friends, and we're looking to institutionalize uh, uh, some of our shareholdings, so that'll all come in as well. Um, then finally, um, we will be talking about uh, what we're doing in terms of ESG initiatives, um, things like local water, uh, possibilities of setting up foundations and so on. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, next week, Kickle Roundtable will feature its Christmas special. Here are top news headlines from 2020. Also looking ahead to the next decade, top trends and which metals are most likely to outperform. That will probably drop on either Thursday or Friday. There is no podcast on January 1st, but we're back again on January 8th with guest Ron McDonald, former Deputy Minister of Canada and now in the battery storage space. Yes, we will be moving downstream. Niels, we're launching Outlook today. What's Outlook? Outlook is basically our uh, the comprehensive work that we've been doing for the last two months, uh, gathering uh, reports and research, looking at what 2020 is going to bring us. Uh, this year's theme is bracing for inflation because um, all of this money printing has consequences. Look uh, for my piece uh, that is past due on rare earth that I owe to uh, Niels Christensen, uh, Andrew or Paul, if you have any input. So feel free to email me after this podcast, after I begin to write it. Uh, reach out to us on Twitter. I am at Michael McRae. That's two C's. Niels is at Niels underscore C and Paul is at P Harris 1313. Have I got you correct, Paul? That's right. Yes. Terrific. If you like this show, tell a friend. We always appreciate a good review and please consider subscribing. That's it from us. On behalf of Paul Harris, Neil Christensen, and Andrew Cheadle, Merry Christmas. We will re reprise our interview with Daniela DiMartino. Daniela DiMartino Booth, CEO of Quill Intelligence, is back to give us her forecast for the economy and Fed Reserve monetary policy. Danielle, welcome back to the show. It's a pleasure speaking with you today. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me again. Let's start with monetary policy. The big news item of the week is the uh, Federal Reserve meeting. Powell's latest statement that he's going to keep rates well low. He said it's going to be uh, accommodative for the policy for the next uh, foreseeable future. How are you reading this? I'm reading it as being very open-ended, and the market correctly interpreted uh, Powell's dovishness. The last statement said that in the coming months that uh, the policy would remain accommodative, and now it is completely subjective. It is for the foreseeable future. It is until substantial progress, quote unquote, substantial progress has been made. He was pressed, uh, he was pressed by reporters at the press conference to put a number on that to say, you know, are, are you gonna stop when the employment rate gets to a certain level or GDP growth is here? And he refused to go there. Uh, so, and, and if you looked at the projections uh, from internally from the Fed, they still don't anticipate being able to hit their 2% target until after 2023. So uh, extremely dovish. On the other hand, uh, not very specific, not very specific at all. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with some of the mechanics 
some of the some of the limitations that the Fed has in terms of the the percentage of certain securities that it can own through its quantitative easing program, uh, the low level of nominal interest rates, and the fact that uh, he sure does need Congress to pass legislation in order for him to have more treasuries to buy and grow that balance sheet. I know that uh, Fed monetary policy usually has a leg in terms of uh, its effect on the economy. Are they not worried about having the inflation rate run up past their 2% target if they do nothing for too long? Well, you know, that has been uh, their stated concern, even though they now have an average inflation targeting regime, which means that they will let it run hot in order to bring the average up since they imposed that inflation target, which, by the way, was in 2012. And since then, they've only hit that target in 11 separate months. So uh, it's a lot of lip service because inflation is systematically the way it's designed, the one that they follow, the core PC, it's systematically underreported. Uh, so the real question is what's going to happen with those Georgia runoff elections, and that could bring the specter of inflation that would be very unwelcome at the Federal Reserve. Can you run us through some of the scenarios of the runoff and what that would do to the inflation rate? Well, the only thing we know is that the races are neck and neck. Uh, I think clearly after the U.S. presidential election, we're not relying too closely uh, on polls headed into these January the 5th runoff elections. We know that we know that hundreds of millions of dollars are pouring into these states, mostly from out of Georgia, most of the money that, that's because... The, the stakes are high, so high that you're, uh, it's that the, the voters should be looking at this, if you will, as a referendum on socialism. And that is what should give Jay Powell pause. He says that he wants massive fiscal stimulus spending out of Washington in order to help people that Fed policy cannot cannot get to, obviously the small business owner, the 20 plus million Americans collecting unemployment insurance benefits. That number rose 1.6 million just in the last week. Uh, so, but it's a, it's a matter of watch what you ask for because if the Senate does flip to the Democrats, then we go back to the blue wave scenario and the reason that bond yields had started to tick up because you're not you're no longer talking about gridlock in Washington and wrangling over $908 billion, but you're talking about the ability to pass trillions upon trillions upon trillions of dollars of stimulus legislation, universal basic income, Medicare for all, new green deal, a lot of money could, could a lot of money could be spent. The treasury could issue a lot of debt over the next two years between now, let's say, in the midterms, which is why those two are so critical. If you get that magnitude of legislation and stimulus spending, I don't think the Fed's going to have to worry about a 2% inflation target anymore. Right. Now, you told me offline that the Fed needed this black swan in 2020 to execute some of the long-term plans. Am I correct to say that? What, what do you mean by that? So a year ago, had we been chatting with each other, we would have been talking about the Fed continuing to move the goalposts and increase the size of its not QE program. It was it was very, very articulate in making sure that people knew that these were just technical adjustments, just tweaking it here and tweaking it there, even though it was increasing the size of the balance sheet at the same pace as that which we saw during the quantitative easing initial phase after the great financial crisis. So 
what the market was beginning to communicate to the Federal Reserve, which boy, it, it was bad news to the Federal Reserve, was that counterparty risk was becoming in question. Credit risk was becoming a question. We had non-financial debt as a percentage of GDP coming into 2020 at 78%. That is higher than any ratio ever recorded in U.S. history, including the peak of the great financial crisis, which was 74%. There was a corporate credit bubble that was threatening to burst as we enter 2020. Global trade had been negative for the entire year. The U.S. economy was already starting to slow, and it was veering much more slowly into a recession, but that is why credit risk was starting to become so apparent to investors if you want to be able to resolve credit risks, though, you have to be able to launch massive quantitative easing, which the Fed was remiss to do because that would have conceded that there was a big problem. Then came COVID, and as you know, it, they had a prepackaged game plan bazooka full of emergency measures that were ready to go immediately. And on March 23rd, they did, and he managed to very quickly bail out the corporate bond market. What I don't understand from Powell's statement is why he needs to be accommodated for the foreseeable future. Like you said, deficits are expected to rise in the wake of doves in the, uh, in, in the government. Janet Yellen, we know she was dovish when she was helm of the Federal Reserve. Now she's at the Treasury. Economists have agreed with you that fiscal stimulus is coming either way. With fiscal stimulus on the way, why do we still need accommodated monetary policy? Well, I mean, I, I, I think I, I think it, it also goes to financial conditions being as accommodative as they have ever been on record, and the stocks being at record highs. We've seen well more than two trillion dollars of fresh debt put on corporate balance sheets in this year alone. It's blown past any prior annual record. It's quite apparent that the capital markets are functioning fine and liquidity is not an issue. And so you you must ask yourself. With, with interest rates still near 5,000-year lows, why on earth it is incumbent upon the Fed to keep interest rates so low because their policy has already proven? Powell has conceded to the fact that monetary policy cannot help the people who are, who are out of work, that that needs to go to the fiscal authorities. So all he's doing by keeping monetary policy this accommodative is levitating the financial markets and feeding a bubble that already exists been looking back at data through to 1881 with Robert Schiller's Cape PE ratio, the 10-year PE ratio, the S&P 500 right now is in the 98th percentile of valuations. And it looks like the, the addition of Tesla alone is going to increase that PE ratio by 10%. So by time, if we were to be speaking a week from now, the S&P 500 would be in the 99th percentile of historic valuations. So I'm not quite sure, I'm right there with you, why it's so incumbent upon Jay Powell to remain this accommodative. I think you get asked this all the time, but if you were a helm of the Federal Reserve, what would you do? What would you do differently? Do you agree with policy today? I do not agree with policy today because it has, it, it, it's taken a problem of insolvency and made it that much worse. You know, Jay Powell had the opportunity he could have put a floor underneath the economy, but still allowed companies that were effectively walking dead to go into restructuring. And instead, the policy has created one in five American companies that are zombies, so to speak, and that's going to make the future productivity, the future ability to achieve escape velocity during a recovery that much more 
difficult. So, you know, I would allow the markets to go back to where they are. In the press conference yesterday, Jay Powell was adamant in insisting that those credit facilities that are going to expire on December the 31st, that they can come back if need be. So he's still ready to continue bailing out insolvent companies that will be a drag on U.S. growth in the future. If I was the head of the Fed, I certainly would not be taking such steps that hinders economic output in the future. Yeah, let's talk about U.S. growth now. Your outlook for 2021, can growth continue to grow at the pace it has in the last couple of months? We're seeing a rise in COVID cases. Unemployment claims are up. What's, uh, what's going on, Danielle? We are, uh, you know, I, I think uh, the, the, between the retail sales report that was weak and the jobless claims, and now it's clearly a trend. If you ask an economist, they need three, three prints of, of data in order for something to be established as a trend. So we have a trend of rising unemployment claims in this country. And the, the you know, we, we we're seeing more of the country shutting down involuntarily and voluntarily people are less mobile going into the critical holiday shopping season. So there is a real risk growing that the United States could slip back into contraction in the first quarter. It's a foot race right now between the damage being exacted by the coronavirus and how quickly vaccines can be disseminated throughout the economy such that we're able to be fully mobile once again. Is there anything that the Fed or Congress could do to reverse this possible contraction? Well, you know, that's a good question. And there is small business relief in this coming stimulus. But when you consider how long the gridlock has put a pause on helping small businesses, I mean, the only thing I can think to say is shame on you, Congress, uh, because so many small businesses have been unnecessarily sacrificed because there's been such, such a huge amount of backbiting in Congress. So it's, I think we're permanently going to lose many small businesses and that that is going to make the ability of the economy to regenerate, be reborn that much more difficult. So I completely applaud the vaccine. I'm excited for it. I'm excited for everybody to be able to get out and, and, and help the American economy grow. But I think it's also equally naive to assume that the damage that has been inflicted upon the U.S. economy is going to disappear overnight. Let's tie all this together now, Danielle. Where do you see inflation headed given rates are likely to remain low? And like you said, the economy may not do very well. Well, I think that, that, uh, that it, again, I, I go back to those two Georgia runoff elections because that's going to determine the magnitude of fiscal spending that we see, and that's going to determine the, the risk that interest rates rise of their own volition. Uh, if they do, I think the Fed would certainly launch yield curve control and try and cap those rates. But once again, inflation is something that once the genie's let out of the bottle, it's very hard to get her back in. If those two Senate uh, runoffs keep the GOP in power of the Senate, then we'll have more gridlock. We won't have the same level of fiscal spending, and that will make it more probable that inflation will not be problematic, but rather a slowing economy. Your favorite asset class for 2021? That's a good question. My favorite asset class for 2021. Uh, you know, I have to say that it's been beaten up so badly uh, that I have to say that gold has to be right up at the top of my list. All right. Thanks very much, Danielle. I, uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and giving us your updates. Merry Christmas you. and have a happy new year to you. Merry Christmas. The same to you. Thank you.
And thank you for watching Kickle News. I'm David Lin. Where are we right now in the commodity cycle?